Welcome to The Remix here on Cairo Radio. My name is Sean. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Each year, over 44,000 Americans die from suicide. And Piper J. Daniels was almost one of those people. And you know what? I happen to have Piper J. Daniels right here in front of me. I'm say six, seven feet away from me right now. That's correct. Hi. Hey, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for joining me today. This is a heavy topic, suicide. It is. It's quite heavy. Yeah, and and this is something that uh, you've been dealing with for for how long? Um, the issue of suicide, uh, wanting to commit suicide, mm-hmm. I've been dealing with since probably the age of 13. Mm-hmm. Um, my suicidal ideation is a result of a mood disorder. It's not just a general sense of hatred towards the world or something like that. Okay. It's a symptom of a mood disorder. And I, I think I began experiencing symptoms of that mood disorder as early as probably four uh, but there was no suicidal ideation until I was a teenager. Before we get before we get into your teen years and sort of everything, where where were you born? Let's let people know a little bit more about Piper J. Daniels before we get into the real heavy stuff. All right. Um, I was born in a fairly affluent suburb of Detroit, and I had two parents who are still married and a younger sister and a pretty traditional evangelical upbringing. Um, Very strict. Um, Pretty normal, though. Mm -hmm. Um, So as a child, I think the only two things that made me remarkable were that I was having symptoms of bipolar disorder, um, hallucinations and paranoia, that kind of thing. And this was uh, started when you were around four? Yes, I can remember my first hallucination happening at the age of four, which I realize sounds crazy, but it really does go back that far. Yeah, well, what what was that hallucination? I mean, four years old, you don't know a lot of things about a lot of things at four years old. And so hallucination must have just freaked you out to no end. What was that like? It was basically like having a nightmare. That's what I thought it was, but I couldn't wake up because I was already awake. And I brought my parents into the room and I was describing for them what I was seeing um, and they were not seeing it and they couldn't explain it and I couldn't explain it. And things like that didn't happen very often, but it did start very early for me. What were you seeing at four Um, at that one particular moment? The first hallucination that I ever had, it sounds silly, Uh, I had a chair at my desk and there were these little monsters that were kind of crawling up the chair and threatening to crawl on me and they were kind of writhing together and they were they had teeth and they were very scary it was just it was kind of like a very strange nightmare so that's happening at 4 and continues so from 4 to 13 tell me what was happening in those years with you because at 13 uh, that's when you say things really sort of exploded. Sure. And that's not your word, that's mine, but that's sort of what's been happening or what happened. Sure. Um, I think that I had a feeling, it's a cliche, I think I had a feeling I was different um, because I had these uh, mood disorder symptoms and also because I knew uh, by age six that I was gay and that was not going to be accepted in my family or community. Mm-hmm. So those two things kind of worked in tandem to make me feel alienated, you know, and strange. Um, 
but not remarkably so, I don't think. What started happening to me around age 12, 13 is that I started getting these migraine headaches and I was prescribed an antidepressant to treat the migraines, which is common practice. And as soon as I was given the medication um, and it built up enough in my system, I started, uh, I went into a psychotic episode. I hallucinated um, quite vividly for a long time. And um, that's when um, cutting behavior, self-injury, that kind of thing started. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of a full-blown psychotic episode. Um, and then as soon as they took me off the antidepressants and they had gotten out of my system in a six-week period, I w essentially went back to normal. So that was a very early indicator and a very, hindsight being 2020, a very obvious indicator that I had a mood disorder. Mm -hmm. um, that happens often to people. And uh, unfortunately, people are usually not diagnosed with a mood disorder until they are much older into right. adulthood. So. Was it at 13 when you first started thinking about suicide? In a serious way, yes. Um, but when I was that age, it was still, the symptoms were fresh. I wasn't exhausted by it yet. I wasn't humiliated by it yet. Um, I didn't feel hopeless yet. So it was more just struggling through things and feeling suicidal ideation. But uh, from ages 13 to 19, the progression uh, was very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very stigmatized type of illness and it's very difficult to treat and I was trying very hard to do that but I think what people sometimes don't understand is that suicidality and suicidal ideation that kind of thing that that is a direct symptom for people who are mentally ill um, it's not necessarily a philosophical question or a moral or ethical debate it is a direct symptom of a diagnosable illness and so for me um I experienced it, I think, most strongly as a symptom when I was younger. Growing older, um, not finding help, uh, even though I was seeking it, it's pretty common for people to self-medicate, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Sure. Um, I began to do that. Um, and there are a lot of, uh, because part of having a mood disorder is experiencing impaired judgment and that kind of thing, um, there are a lot of bad experiences that result from having a mood disorder. Um, based on bad judgment, that kind of thing. Right. So uh, this thing happens where the frustration of not being able to be treated and then the terrible th consequences, I suppose, of what you have can kind of culminate into frustration and it's a very lonely and dark place. And, and then you just kind of don't know what else to do, maybe, and that's maybe where that sort of thought of ending your life comes in. That's exactly it. Um, most people don't really want to die. People just want a way out of their suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where I was coming from. Piper, you, you wrote a piece called Sirens. I um, did. And I, I, don't, I don't have the website that, that is hosting it. What is the website? Um, Christian Pete, the wonderful Christian Pete are at Tarpaulin Sky published this essay. Um, and you should go to the website and check it out because it has a, a visual element as well. And what you did too, though, Piper, is uh, you've recorded an audio component to it. So it's the exact thing that people can read and they can also listen to it. And uh, what I want to do uh, this hour of this show today here on Cairo Radio is play that today here on the radio. And I've had to cut it up into three chunks. And so... Um, when we come back from this break, we're going to hear part one of Sirens. I'm here with Piper J. Daniels, and uh, we're going to be right back here on the remix here on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM, Seattle's News, Seattle's Talk.
Hello and welcome back to The Remix here on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. My name is Sean. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you've been listening, you've been hearing from essayist Piper J. Daniels, who is uh, here with me today. And we're talking about, um, well, we're talking about suicide and we're talking about Piper's life and we're talking about uh, why uh, suicide matters and it's not really talked about. And uh, Piper, you wrote something called Sirens. Um, and you have an audio component to this thing. And I wanted to play it in chunks because it's very long and we don't have a lot of time in these in these segments here on the radio. But hello, Piper. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Right now, I want to play part one of Sirens. And again, where can people find this um, online? If you go to www.tarpaulinsky.com, you can see um, the link to my piece there. Sirens. In the beginning, there is no way to assess or even to imagine the danger. Suicide, like many flirtations, starts with something small. Smoking a cigarette, leaving something electric too close to the tub, knowing your seatbelt is unbuckled and leaving it that way. And because modern life provides each of us with a sneaking suspicion that our existence is one of Sisyphus on speed, there is a freedom these small acts of defiance afford us. Pressures they relieve. These subtle ways of leaning into and then whispering to death. You don't have the nerve. The truth is, it is a shorter distance than you think from recklessness to despair. And because death as a solution is so all-encompassing, so finite, other ways of coping pale in comparison. In no time, your neural pathways form a perfect arrow leading to the afterlife. You wake up one morning and you're not daring death anymore. In fact, death is daring you. Pointing out, for instance, how when the sun is right, the Golden Gate Bridge makes a black X upon the water, marking the spot. Then the research begins. You find the most famous suicide letters and begin inside of them to make a place for yourself. The black X upon the bay is by now haunting you. It is home. You dream of the water being green over blue, and each night your body jerks awake as it mimics the motion of falling. The choicest place from which to jump is light pole 69, facing the bay. The time from the bridge to the water is four to seven seconds, depending upon the body's mass and the rate of acceleration. The body falls at 75 miles per hour and kills 98% of people on impact. And this is why, for those of us who wish to go gently, the bridge is such a meaningful place. There will be at most a bit of blood in the water. No one needs to cut you down, looking into your blue face framed by the rope that hung you. Nor does anyone need to scrub away the sunburst pattern your brain might make upon a wall. Situated between a bridge in China and a forest in Japan, the Golden Gate Bridge is the second most popular place in the world to suicide. And once you're numb to everything but the possibility of jumping, 
you can find a strange, if unexpected, beauty in that. The way in which thoughts of death entered me was through the Trojan horse of manic depression, which presented itself when I was thirteen. I did not suspect at that graceless age that my demons and what I did with them differed so much from anyone else's. Mental illness, in my case, began with cutting. This wasn't something I learned to do. It was something that rose up out of me as though just beneath the skin, a crucial text was making its way to the surface, and in order to read it, I had to trace it from the outside. Avid reader that I was, the scars soon zebraed across my body. Sometimes I cut a word, help. Sometimes a star which amassed over time into a perfect Milky Way where my thighs met. Sometimes I carved a person's name, not to show them, never to show them, but because I needed to balance the weight of my love corporally to harvest and name the names of my heart. Or, in the case of people I hated, to draw names to the surface like a thin splinter. I believed at the time that blood was the language of God, the surest way to catch his ear. These were the things I was thinking and feeling as an eighth grader. And when in the school year it was time for short sleeves, I discovered just how different how deviant I was. My carved arms became a juicy little story disseminated by everyone in school. It would be the first time I was seen as a freak and the penalty for that distinction all but killed me. To this day, I have not learned to embrace my scars. Though at the time of this essay, I have not cut in two years, I wear with shame my own scarred evidence. When asked about any particular maculation, I do not answer, I do not give ammunition. I will myself into a mental state in which I become silence itself. Piper J. Daniels, Sirens. That's part one. Um, Piper, what was school like for you? Middle school? High yeah, school? Yeah. There's that specific line in there. My carved arms became a juicy little story disseminated by everyone in school. What 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 was that like? I think I was always a little strange. I don't think I was ever destined for popularity or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when that happened, um, I didn't really understand it was happening. And so I wasn't very protective of it. I didn't make it a secret. You When what happened? When I began at age 13... To have symptoms where um, I would self-harm. Oh, I see. Um, things like that. Things that were physically evident right. symptoms. Right. It was pretty awful. Um, I think that it's a very difficult age for everyone. And I think that, um, how do I say this? I don't think that where I lived and where I went to school, anything particularly interesting was really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a really vanilla place. And so uh, what was happening with me at least to my mind, and um, I've had some people confirm it since, was kind of a scandal. And I was looked upon as just being this complete and total freak. And it was hurtful. But at the same time, I was in a psychotic episode, and then I was trying to recover from one. And so people's opinions hurt me. But it didn't, it wasn't enough to kill me. You know, I was surviving some pretty gruesome hallucinations. And these kids really couldn't 
compared to that level. (laughs) What would you say to kids out there is like how to handle this situation if they see someone that has cuts on their arms or something? I mean, should they approach them and say something or, or, or what? I mean, really the only advice that I feel comfortable giving is to say that if you see someone who's struggling with their mental health, please understand that it is a diagnosable illness. There's medication available, there's treatment available, and it is just the same as uh, any other illness. And uh, sometimes it's also just as fatal. And so uh, people who are going through that kind of situation really deserve your admiration and respect because they're fighting just as hard for their lives as people with physical illnesses are. Uh, Piper J. Daniels, essayist, she has written a piece called Sirens, and we played part one here. And we're going to come back after this break, and we're going to play... Part two, we'll be right back here on The Remix on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM, Seattle's News, Seattle's Talk. Welcome back to The Remix here on Cairo Radio. My name is Sean. Um, I am joined here by essayist Piper J. Daniels. Hello, essayist Piper J. Daniels. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today and um, for sharing your story of mental illness and suicide. And you wrote a great piece called Sirens. Uh, I've had to cut this thing into three chunks because it's too long for one of our Cairo radio segments. But we are going to play part two right now of Piper J. Daniels' Sirens. Because the mind is so labyrinthine and psychology so uncertain... It makes sense to talk instead about the body as an instrument of manic depression. The way I presented, cutting, burning, swallowing glass, these were considered acts of self-injury, when in fact I was trying to save myself by driving out the poltergeist who suddenly lived inside and spoke to me at night of unspeakable things. It is confusing the first time your body becomes an instrument of psychosis. There is no precedent for questioning or rejecting your senses. You hear a voice and have no way of knowing it's coming from inside the house. Then there is the case of the body as an instrument of mania. I awoke one night from a dead sleep and a too bright light was humming inside me. I did not sleep for the next 14 nights. Money moved easily through my fingers. I stole things for the pleasure of doing it. I allowed anyone inside who wanted me, and I lived through them. The etymology of ecstasy from the Latin ecstasis, standing outside oneself. But every mouth that moved over me made a fissure, and I started cracking from the outside, bleeding light. And suddenly the world was slow and ink black. And I realized the way I was sharing my body was not beautiful, but rather an invitation addressed to the brutal and the opportunistic. From that moment on, I lived in my body like a frightened child tormented by dark and darkness both. This was the body as an instrument of depression. And so the body becomes a pale coin, depressed or manic, depending upon how the mind lays claim. If human life is an oath, then suicide for me was like an oath recited backwards. 
a protest against the physical body that gave entrance to that first strange and violent ghost and all that followed. I would use my body as a vehicle for annihilation, and I kept those plans secret, teeth clenched, mouth like the silencer on a gun. The time it almost worked, the pills I used to overdose were prescribed on February 24th, 2005, filled at CVS Pharmacy and hoarded till spring. There were 42 tablets of Seroquel, 30 Lamictal, 60 Geodin, 90 Effexor, and 90 Topamax, 312 pills in all. I stood before the bathroom mirror in my parents' home, cupping water in the palm of my right hand to swallow the pills in my left. My mouth was as dry as a bone wind, and the capsules kept sticking to my tongue. I expected to feel something powerful. Relief, perhaps. Fear, or even regret. But there was only the urgency of the poltergeist inside. From somewhere far away, my old self was speaking. You are killing yourself, she warned. You are killing yourself. Just then, my mother knocked on the bathroom door. What are you doing in there, she demanded. You're not trying to kill yourself, are you? This was not my first attempt. I heard myself answer simply, no. I hid all the vials in the back of a bathroom drawer and lay down on the living room sofa. My parents continued to watch television. My sister continued to ignore me from behind her closed bedroom door. I wrote a brief letter, which my mother would later remark was of poor quality for a writer. And then they switched off the lights, locked the doors, and everyone went to sleep. I coded that night coded again, died and was resurrected, but only because my mother discovered me. I spent three weeks on life support, woke up and walked around for an entire week I have no memory of. This is referred to as an amnesic event. The first thing I remember is standing in the harsh light of an inpatient mental facility wearing bloody pajama pants. There's a payphone in my hand. Get me out of here, I'm saying. But to whom? They gave me lithium three times a day. The pale yellow orb of it. On my tongue, the sacrament of it. All my eyelashes fell out. I told myself they were an offering. That they were black boughs placed upon the graves of everything that ever haunted me. It was two years before I could focus long enough to read and write again. The past, writes Claudia Rankine, is a life sentence, a blunt instrument aimed at tomorrow. But only if you let it, I told myself. Only if you let it. I've said that suicide is caused by a poltergeist that lives inside, but that is truer of my life before lithium. Suicide comes to me now as something external, as from Homer's Odyssey, a siren song. And each day I do my best to battle the sirens as Odysseus did, ears plugged with beeswax, body strapped to the mast. For I know the sirens, oh, the sirens, they sing so slow 
and sweet. It has been said of the sirens that if we could only find a way to sail past their sweet music, they would fall lifeless into the sea. Having succumbed and been saved several times, I know better. Beneath the Golden Gate Bridge, where the bay shines bean green over blue, a siren will always lay in wait for me. It's been so long since I heard one singing, but I am no less afraid. In the silence of the sirens, Kafka writes, Now the sirens have a still more fatal weapon than their song, namely, their silence. And though admittedly such a thing never happened, it is still conceivable that someone might possibly have escaped from their singing. But from their silence, certainly never. Piper J. Daniels, Sirens. This is part two of a a 20-minute audio piece that Piper has voiced and also written for Tarpaulin Sky, tarpaulinsky.com. Piper is here with me. Hello, Piper. Hello, Sean. Thanks for joining me. Um, so we're gonna in the next segment we're gonna hear the very last part of Sirens, and uh, I'm sorry that I had to cut it up into chunks. Um, I like it as a whole piece, but I think as long as people hear it, um, it's it's important and it's really great. Um, it's a really great piece. But what what drove you to write this, and why do you want to share it and get it out there? What are you hoping? I think that my motivation for writing this piece was twofold. The first was that when I was seeking out literature, books, anything that I could find about this topic, um, there tended to be kind of narcissistic memoirs and then um, some pretty doom and gloom statistics kind of things. Um, There wasn't really anything that attempted to describe or encapsulate or explain the experience of mental illness or suicidality. Mm-hmm. The extremely common notion in regard to suicide is that it is a selfish or a cowardly thing to do. And uh, having been through uh, so much in this regard, I really, really want to fight against that. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. I'm sure that there are people out there who are selfish, but they're also, you know, selfish cancer patients. It doesn't mean everyone is. Right. Um, I really wanted to kind of buck the notion that, you know, people who have mental illness who even think about suicide are selfish people. So I think that instead of just saying that, instead of kind of getting angry at people, I wanted to be able to describe experiences in a way that they might be able to understand mm-hmm. um, and from a sensory it. perceptive. Um, but that was not the main thing for me. What I really wanted to say with this piece ultimately is that I am proud of who I am. I am proud of my tribe. People with mental illness are so incredible and resourceful and resilient and amazing, and they are the most underserved, underestimated people in the world. And I wanted to write them a battle cry and a love letter and a psalm and say, listen, I see all of these things that are horrible about your life, but here are all the gifts too, and I see those as well. And I think that we need to celebrate those things. So I really just, I wanted to reach out to people who are struggling, whatever level they're at, and tell them that I have been through this for a decade or more, um, trying to kill myself and not having any other plan. And 
I was I was able to pull myself out of it, and I didn't think that I would be able to, and I don't think anyone around me thought I would be able to either. Right. Um, well, I want to I want to talk to you more about that on the other side. Let's do it. Of how you are surviving and how you are recovering from everything, Piper. <laughs> we're gonna take a break here, and we're also gonna hear uh, the very last bit of sirens um, from Piper J. Daniels on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM, Seattle's News and Seattle's Talk. Welcome back to The Remix here on Cairo Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. Um, If you've been listening, you have been hearing uh, myself chat with Piper J. Daniels, who is an essayist and a really cool person. And she's- Oh, thanks, Sean. Oh, you're nice. No problem. And she's right over there. Uh, about six feet away from me. Uh, we've been listening to some of your essay called Sirens, and if people want to go to tarpaulinsky.com, people can find it there, they can read it, they can also listen to it. And so what we've been doing is playing that here on Cairo Radio and talking to Piper about her own experience with mental illness and suicide. Um, so here it is, here is Sirens Part 3. To re-enter the world of the living, to redirect neural pathways, or even make a plan that extends beyond dying next Tuesday. This, ironically, has become my life's work. For the better part of a decade, suicide was my only plan. And though I cannot say this with certainty, I believe I have moved beyond that now. The question, of course, is how? How did I move beyond it? And the answer, I fear, is so intricate, so deeply nuanced, that I can never know it for certain. What I do know, I wanted to write a book, and I convinced myself I couldn't die until that book was published. For three years, that plan was enough to keep me alive, though just barely. And then one day, there was love, a love that had nothing to do with me, a love based solely upon the beauty I saw in someone else. Slowly, searchingly, I became accountable to that person, to that love. Wound by wound, I was healing because it is, as Rumi says, the wound is the place where the light enters you. To be clear, no one can kill or save a suicidal person. But for those to whom the sirens call and call, it is crucial to take what you can get when you can get it. Even the tiniest things can sustain you keep you alive for one more moment, and those moments will come to something, days, weeks, even years. And one day you'll realize that no matter how good your reason is for wanting to die, there might be another way out. That instead of trying to solve the overwhelming conditions and crises that led to your suicidality, you can deal instead with the moment, with your impulses, your ineffective coping mechanisms and self-perpetuated myths. And slowly, very slowly, those crises will come crumbling down. There was this moment after my nearly successful suicide attempt when I looked from my hospital window to the rushed and ragged streets below and saw, beyond the squalor, a fierce utopian beauty that reminded me of Campanella's City of the Sun. As I watched people board buses, cop drugs, and stamp out cigarettes, this singular sentence rose to the surface. Please, just give me one more chance to be in it. 
It was only a sentence. It was only a moment. I went back immediately to wishing I was dead. But now I had a tool. I had something to work with. And that thing, however fleeting, was possibility. No matter who you are or what you've done, there is beauty inside of you. Perhaps it is only a sliver, but within that sliver, your energy, creativity, kindness, and resilience are stored. You are free to go on hating the other parts of yourself. It is as you wish. But I am here to tell you that no matter what happens, no matter how muted or inaccessible that beauty feels, you have to hold on to it and believe in it with the fervor of someone who is born again. If you can do that, even for one moment each day, that beauty will begin to sustain you. You will grow into it, and in doing so, become more whole than you ever imagined. Because the truth is, recovery, like suicide, starts with something small. And someday the darkness that nearly defeated you will serve as a counterpoint, a mode of gratitude for all of the light you've built inside of you. Treachery is beautiful, wrote Jean Genet, if it makes us sing. This is a call to the damaged, the suicidal, and the mentally ill who feel as though they are drowning in darkness. I see you. I see your beauty. Hold fast to it. You are convinced at this point that you are all alone. I thought that too. But somewhere in the night, in every city, in every country, all around the world, there is a choir filled with people like you and me. And somehow, against all odds, we are singing. Piper J. Daniels, Sirens. Piper is here with me. So, um... You haven't cut in two years, correct? That's correct. And g- great. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a big deal, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, you're alive, but are you well? I'm, how, how I are, am. How are you recovering? Do you still want, do you still have thoughts of suicide? I think that uh, when that's your primary coping mechanism, you have neural pathways um, that always guide you toward that same impulse. So I do have the thought, but I do not have any longer the desire behind the thought, which is not to say that I won't experience times in the future where that will be the case. Um, I really want to emphasize for people who are trying to survive suicidal ideation that there is really only one thing, in my opinion, that actually makes a difference. And it's called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. And it was invented right here in the good old University of Washington uh, by a lady called Marsha Linehan. And uh, basically what it does is it combines behavioral psychiatry and Zen concepts Mm -hmm. and and kind of puts them together. And really what it does is it, it helps you gradually to change your behavior, your coping mechanisms, your thoughts. Um, and it completely redirects everything so that you are viewing the world um, completely differently. And uh, it is extremely effective, not only for people with mood disorders, but also for people with personality disorders. And I kind of wish everyone would do it. Yeah. Everyone would be a lot better is off. Is this uh, what helped you? Did this you is this? the only thing that helped me really get over 
wanting to die. So uh, dialectical behavioral therapy is something that you can ask your doctor about Mm -hmm. and get involved in, and it will probably save your life. If you give it all you've got, um, you really give it a chance and you do the recommended work, I think that it's the best chance anyone has for survival. Um, You know, there are many things that you can do, but uh, if you're not changing your neural pathways Mm -hmm. and your habits... There's, you're just going to keep reverting back to the same behaviors and thoughts. So, Thank you for sharing your story. Thank Number you so one. much for listening. You're That's welcome. It's really nice of you. I've learned so much about you. Sirens is a great article, a great essay. Thank you. You, you read it very well. Thank how you. How many takes did it take you to do that? That's a single take because I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> I, I'm used to reading it. I read it often and I read it often while I was writing it. So, Well, it's very powerful. Thank you so much. So I, I really, appreciate that. Yeah, man. If you guys uh, want to read and or listen to Sirens, go to uh, tarpaulinsky.com um, and you can do that. Again, Piper J. Daniels, an awesome essayist uh, who is alive and well. I sure am. I really am. Like, that's genuine. I'm really, really well, and I'm really excited about it, actually. Well, Piper J. Daniels, uh, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, this has been The Remix here on Cairo Radio, 97.3 FM, Seattle's News, Seattle's Talk. Seattle's Talk.